usually these intros will start with something like the building is looming over me but this one it isn't really looming standing in front of it and it's sort of this bland functionalist 60s style it's not very inspiring i would say it could be eerie but maybe that's just a weather today in geneva it's just cold And I see a guard coming. I don't think they like me recording here. Episode 1. Mistakes were made. Act 1. Who got it wrong? There was a time when being gay was considered wrong. In fact, there are many places still today where that is true. Communities and legislators that stigmatize discriminate against gay people merely for the fact that they have an attraction that is different from most people. In the Western world, homosexuality has not only been legalized, but also accepted socially, for the most part. In the United States, states began to gradually decriminalize homosexuality in the 1960s. In the UK, it was 1967. In the Netherlands, it was 1971. In Australia, the criminalization of homosexuality lasted until the 1990s. What led to the ultimate decriminalization of homosexuality is a story for another time, and not the focus in this episode. But I want to hone in on one aspect of the argument surrounding the legality of homosexuality. Mental health. For a long time, it was common medical belief that homosexuality was a mental disorder. The American Psychiatric Association classified it as a mental disorder in the group of sexual deviation. During the 1950s and 60s, they also prescribed a cure. According to Psychology Today, quote, this typically involved showing patients pictures of naked men while giving them electric shocks or drugs to make them vomit, and, once they could no longer bear it, showing them pictures of naked women or sending them out on a date with a young nurse, end of quote. This treatment was called aversion therapy. Didn't work, obviously, because homosexuality is neither curable nor something to be cured. In an article in the New York Times on December 16, 1973, the American Psychiatric Association said it will no longer insist on a label of sickness of individuals who insist that they are well and demonstrate no generalized impairment in social effectiveness. You can tell from the wording that the APA didn't reverse their policy for the right reason. It was, in fact, careful about its framing, because it feared that conservatives would view the new policy as too permissive. One scientist quoted in the article said it was in fact neither describing homosexuality as normal nor abnormal. But even then, the APA didn't do it purely for the reason that many of you might think it did. The New York Times quoted Dr. Robert L. Spitzer, a psychiatrist at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, saying that, quote, this would mean that many more homosexuals who need psychiatric help for reasons other than homosexuality would seek professional help because the homosexuals would know that the psychiatrists would not necessarily try to cure them by converting them to heterosexuality." End of quote. It was, as far as medical classifications go, more practical than scientific. A year before, John E. Fryer, an American psychiatrist, gave a press conference in which he talked about himself being gay. He did not disclose his name, called himself Dr. Anonymous, used a microphone that disguised his voice, and wore a Richard Nixon mask. This is the greatest loss. 
our honest humanity. And that loss leads all those others around us to lose that little bit of their humanity as well. For if they were truly comfortable with their own homosexuality, then they could be comfortable with ours. As homosexual psychiatrists, therefore, we must use our skills and wisdom to help all of them and ourselves grow to be comfortable with that little piece of humanity called homosexuality. Medical standards in the United States slowly shifted away from aversion or conversion therapy to affirming therapy that encourages people to accept their sexual orientation. But then there's the World Health Organization. Created in 1948 under the umbrella of the United Nations, the ultimate guide of international health standards. The WHO removed homosexuality from its International Classification of Diseases, the ICD, with the publication of ICD-10 in 1990. Not only does that make the WHO's reclassification younger than the song Losing My Religion by R.E.M., it also wasn't the full reclassification we could have hoped for. Because ICD-10 still carried the construct of, quote, egodystonic sexual orientation, end of quote. In this condition, the person is not in doubt about his or her sexual preference, however, quote, wishes it were different because of associated psychological and behavioral disorders, end of quote. Or to word it differently, the WHO essentially stated that gay people are not sick or confused, but still believe that being gay is bad for them because it makes them sick. How is this possible? Why did it take the World Health Organization, a body presumably adhering to the highest standard of medical knowledge, this long to recognize what is now the indisputable fact that homosexuality is not something to be cured because it is not a mental disorder? The instinctive reaction why don't we just ask the WHO? What you'll find out over the course of this season is that the WHO and its associated bodies aren't exactly the most forthcoming in talking to the media. Do you know what we do here? My section? Sir, yes, sir, I have an idea. Whoa, sir. whoa, whoa. Let's say you have no idea and leave it at that, okay? an idea about what we do. We would not be good at what we do, would we? We would be cunts. Are you calling us cunts? Yeah, I wasn't going to not have a Mark Wahlberg reference in here, was I? I did, however, email the WHO about this issue and did in fact receive the following written response. Quote, On May 17, 1990, the removal of homosexuality from the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD, was a significant step in the direction of recognizing human rights and rejecting the classification of homosexuality as a disease. This decision was influenced by a growing awareness that there was insufficient scientific evidence to support the pathologizing and the medicalization of variations in sexual orientation expression. End of quote. It is important to note that homosexuality wasn't removed in its classification by the WHO, but by the World Health Assembly, the political body that governs the WHO. This assembly meets once a year, and it isn't stacked with scientific advisors discussing the merits of public health policy, but instead with the political representatives of the WHO's 194 member states. This means that decisions at the World Health Assembly are, in nature, political. I needed to talk to someone who had experienced the inner workings of the WHO to understand the process of how these decisions are made. My name is Charles Gardner, and I uh, have worked in global health for about 30 years now, including I've worked as the health attache at the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi for five years. 
Um, coming out of that, I then shifted to the Rockefeller Foundation, um, where I worked on uh, research and development uh, projects on HIV, tuberculosis, uh, and malaria, and dengue. And after that, then I took an assignment, a two-year assignment, uh, as a senior advisor to the World Health Organization. This was uh, about 60 years after the, uh, the World Health Organization was uh, created. So it was created in 1948. And uh, what I was helping with was the creation of their first uh, research strategy. Most of my work focused on uh, HIV, tuberculosis, rabies, dengue, child health issues, uh, predominantly uh, issues affecting people in low and middle income countries. My specific focus was on helping researchers uh, do their work in those countries and on strengthening the research capacity um, in uh, low and middle income countries so that it, it's not always just people who look like me and I'm white coming into those countries and telling them what to do. Charles Gardner does not currently hold a role with the WHO, either inside or as a consultant. Instead, he levels considerable criticisms towards WHO on its stance on tobacco harm reduction. But more on that later. With the WHO making political decisions in what is not perceived as a political institution, which, again, it isn't, were there vested interests that prolonged the time it needed to recognize that homosexuality wasn't a mental illness? A uh, thing to think about with the World Health Organization is I, I came to, to look at it as, well, this is like sort of like a trade association. Uh, so like the Pharma Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers Association or the Biotechnology Industry Organization. And a trade association always have to, has to play to the lowest common denominator. It has, the World Health Organization has member countries and they have to be the ones who drive the process. And so, you know, the World Health Organization's position on homosexuality, classifying homosexuality as a disease up until the 19, up until 1990 um, is, uh, as uh, you and I have discussed uh, in the past, actually, is something that was driven by certain member countries who are incredibly uncomfortable with homosexuality. They finally changed it. So, there, so there's also a history of getting things wrong, getting things wrong for a long, long time, and then finally changing their mind and moving in the right direction. And that specific example is interesting to me because I'm, I'm, I'm curious to what extent the members have influence over those decisions, because I think the, the, the audience, the listeners will think, well, the, the World Health Organization, these are dedicated experts in their field. They will make decisions based on the available evidence. And and then and then and decide on it. Because I emailed the WHO about this and they emailed me back and said that in the case of the, the, the ICD ten uh, mental disorder decision, that in this case the available evidence in the early nineties was then not available anymore to support uh, the classification as it was. Um and that therefore it was changed. I they did not answer my question on, you know, whether there was influence one way or the other to change that or to keep it the way it was so i'm I'm curious about this what can what what like what do we know about how the member countries 
seek to influence those decisions and if they even if they even can because if 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 members send their experts well then the experts will you know arguably i mean understandably or maybe expectedly work on the scientific evidence that is available and not in the interest of that member state is or is that too idealistic and a too idealistic way to look at it like what 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 can they actually do what how do the members influence or not influence the decisions of the who well, a lot of decisions are taken by something called the World Health Assembly, which meets once a year. Um, very senior me- uh, leaders from um, the member states. But everything is pretty well cooked before that meeting happens by the staff within the World Health Organization. So they're, they're going to vote on things and they'll ne- negotiate and and um, change the wording uh, here and there. Um, but it's it is... It is like a kind of democracy, which means, you know, in democracies, you know, as Winston Churchill said, it's the worst possible form of government except for all the others. So decisions in this case ideally are going to be evidence-based, but in reality, they're going to turn out to be evidence-informed because politics enters into the into the process. And it just, that's the way democracies work. When you make your organization subject to politics, the risk is that it becomes political. The WHO, like other organizations of its kind, and also the organization it is a part of, the UN, is dependent on donations from its members. Unlike the European Union, which is established on a treaty that lays out exactly how much money each member state has to pay, the WHO contribution is voluntary. There is a membership fee that all members do have to pay to continue being a member, but it only represents a fraction of the WHO's operational budget. The important part are voluntary donations, a large chunk of which comes from the U.S. government. And when it's voluntary and the WHO is under criticism, then this might happen. We pay 400 to $500 million a year. China's paying 38 39 and $40 million a year. And it's like they control this group. There's something very bad going on. And you know what? I've gotten very much involved. It's been going on for a long period of time, and we don't want to be the suckers anymore. In April 2020, then-U.S. President Donald Trump cut the funding of the World Health Organization over an alleged pro-China bias in its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Trump administration handed in a notice of withdrawal which needs to be given with a one-year notice and immediately stop paying into the WHO pot. When Joe Biden became president, he reinstated the funding and cancelled the notice of withdrawal. The politics of it all is a story for another podcast and not least because Donald Trump has a tendency of dealing in half-truths, picking up information here and there and mushing it into a talking point that concludes with how great he is. That being said, there are a couple of things surrounding the criticism of the WHO that stand out. The WHO's independence is threatened. It's not just Donald Trump saying it. It has been extensively editorialized in major news publications, including Le Monde and The Atlantic. It all started with one particular event that I think we all remember. China has identified the cause of the mysterious new virus. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. There are fears a rapidly spreading virus has reached Australia. This is a rapidly emerging situation 
We're, there is not a cause for alarm. The first US case has been detected. There's confirmation the coronavirus has reached Australia. China is urging its citizens not to travel abroad as it struggles to contain the virus. The COVID-19 pandemic will probably mark the most significant health event in most of our lifetimes. The disruption of global aviation, border closures, significant impediments on the right to move around, go to a bar, even grocery shopping, and the largest and quickest vaccination campaign in human history. If there was an event that the WHO was created for, it probably was this one. The world looked to the WHO for answers. And we found out that in between the helpful advice it was providing governments with on COVID, it applied its own biases. On January 14, 2020, the official Twitter account of the WHO tweeted, quote, Preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of the novel coronavirus. End of quote. The problem with the tweet was not merely that the WHO was echoing a Chinese propaganda line, but that even the Chinese Communist Party was more nuanced in its communication that there was, quote, possibility of limited transmission, end of quote. With today's knowledge, such an early conclusion seems ill-advised at best and deceptive at worst. As COVID spread and WHO member countries were quizzed about the effectiveness of their policies regarding testing and vaccination, one of the most embarrassing moments for the WHO came in the form of an interview given by one of its officials to a Hong Kong TV station. After their video hookup appeared to be disconnected, the interviewer called him back. This time, Iowward declared that if he had contracted the coronavirus, he would want to be treated in China. WHO considered Taiwan's membership. Hello? We, with the, with the I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah, let me, let, let me, let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. When Islewood was asked about Taiwan, he stalled for close to 10 seconds and avoided a reporter's question. But the reporter persisted. I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well, on Taiwan's case. We decided to give Dr. Alward another call to follow up. And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've, we've already talked about China. Iowood is an assistant director general at the WHO and is a Canadian-trained epidemiologist. Ever since the pandemic broke out, he has constantly sung China's praises. I left um, inspired and with a deep admiration for, uh, you know, the common Chinese people uh, that, that I worked with. If I had COVID-19, I'd want to be treated in, in China. Lin Shijia, the CEO of the Foundation of Medical Professionals Alliance, lamented that the WHO has been deeply poisoned by Chinese influence. He said he believed that once the pandemic was over, each nation would seriously consider how to reform these kinds of international organisations that had been heavily infiltrated by China. It seems odd that people who get into the medical or medical research profession end up having to think about whether Taiwan is a country or not. What it tells us is that if you are a WHO official, at least one of those who appears on TV, you are a type of diplomat first, and then whatever your profession is, second. And the influence of China is only growing. 20 years ago, when I was at WHO, China contributed maybe 1 or 2% of the budget of the WHO. Now, you're talking close to 10%. So 
China, I'm just looking at crystal ball here, could be the country in the future that will push for WHO reform. But you know the problem of U.S.-China relations. This is Tiki Pangestu, visiting professor at the Yonglu Lin School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore. Tiki Bangestu is a busy man and an accomplished academic. His biography is long, very long. I worked at the WHO in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, as, as director of a department of research policy and cooperation that was between 1999 and 2012. On the website of the Asia-Pacific Immunization Coalition, it says that his research interests are in the epidemiology, pathogenesis, laboratory diagnosis and prevention of infectious diseases, biosecurity and dual-use research, genomics and health, and in health research policy, health research systems, global health governance, development of research capabilities in developing countries, linkages between research and policy, vaccine confidence and harm reduction approaches to mitigate health problems. He has 30-plus years of teaching experience at undergraduate and postgraduate levels in the fields of medical microbiology, immunology, global health policy and issues, and in evidence-informed policy development. He has supervised 20 master's degrees and 10 PhD candidates. And that makes him a busy man. Scheduling a specific time two weeks in advance, we recorded the interview online. It's 8 a.m., considering that I don't sound too bad. And in terms of the, the functioning, the internal functioning of the WHO, how would you describe it? Does it most resemble, for, for those listeners who won't know, does it most resemble a government a ministry, a bureaucracy? Is it more like a charity? What, what, in, in, if you had to explain that, what would you say? I would be very open with you, and I would say WHO, at the end of the day, is a political organization, okay? In other words, the governance let's say the board of directors of the WHO, are its 193 member countries, okay? So it, it functions as very much a political organization. And when you talk about global health, countries are obviously not the only important players. Like, what about all the pharmaceutical companies that make all the medicines and the vaccines? What about big philanthropy organizations like Mr. Gates in Seattle, okay? They, they, they're major players. What about all the civil society organizations, okay? None of them are part of WHO's governance. And it's historical because WHO was established in 1948, immediately after the World War, where the only players were the countries. So it is sort of a sovereignty-based organization and unfortunately, it is not very inclusive in that regard, in terms of its decision-making. I mean, you can think of it, actually, it's a bit like a supranational government, although it obviously does not have a sort of a legal status. But major decisions are decided upon by 193 member states. And that's it. Nobody else has a voice. And you can argue that that's primarily one of the, let's say, governance weaknesses of the WHO. It is non-inclusive. Many attempts, even when I was there for 13 years, many, many attempts to make it more inclusive. But every time the member states will hang on to their power, they would hang on to their sovereignty. They say, no, we don't want anybody else making decisions. 
And and do some countries or groups of countries have more influence than others? And how do they make that? How do they achieve that influence? Uh, yeah, I, I could see that coming. And obviously, if you look at how WHO is funded, eighty percent of the funding comes from the United States, and basically it is the G seven countries: the U.S., Japan, the Western European countries. Um, Australia, to a lesser extent, the Scandinavian countries, okay, they make up in total about 40% of WHO's funding. So I'll give you an example of the United States. Um, it, it's, it's classical. He who pays has control. Under, the, under President Bush in the old days, okay, abortion, for example, was a big no-no as far as U.S. government policy is concerned. And WHO was actually, not directly, but, you know, basically we were told, don't go in that direction of abortion and birth control because the U.S. is just going to try to importantly block whatever uh, um, decisions we want to go in that direction and importantly reduce funding for the reproductive health programs within WHO. So definitely uh, those who hold the purse strings for the WHO are in some ways controlling of, uh, have the ability to control the agenda or the work that the organization does. This speaks to the wider issue with the World Health Organization. While it performs important tasks in the field of medical research and health advice, it also plays ball with whoever gives the most money. Most of our donors view homosexuality as a problem, then maybe it needs to remain a mental illness for another 20 years. Our largest donor has a restrictive view on reproductive health? Then let's not advise on abortion or birth control. A main donor is sensitive on health support for Taiwan? Then let's pretend Taiwan does not even exist. It's a clientelism that is at odds with evidence-based policymaking. Did that happen to you when you were at the WHO, that you, were, that, that you got the message, well, you know, it would be better if we did it this way because the, the funders would prefer it that way? Yes, it, it didn't happen to me directly, but certainly during the 13 years, you remember that was during the era of the Millennium Development Goals, okay? And my department was in charge of an area called Research Policy and Cooperation. To the people who were giving money, that's not sexy, okay? It's not like stop TB, roll back malaria, give more HIV AIDS treatment. So we had a lot of problems getting funding. So I had to rely on core funding from the WHO, which was not a lot. Uh, and yet at the same time, I saw my colleagues in HIV AIDS, in TB and malaria. They had so much money, they didn't know what to do with it. To the extent that they were spending money in countries where some of the decisions on how to spend that money was not actually what the country was actually in need of. Projects within the WHO are earmarked meaning they are provided for a specific purpose and then used for that specific purpose. This can lead to wasteful spending. In 2017, a CBS News report found that the WHO spends over $200 million per year on travel, more than it spends on fighting AIDS, tuberculosis, or malaria. The same year, the Associated Press writes, quote, Dr. Margaret Chan, Director General of the WHO, traveled to Guinea earlier this month to join the country's president in celebrating the world's first Ebola vaccine. After praising health workers in West Africa for their triumph over the lethal virus, 
Chan spent the night in top-tier presidential suite at the beachside Palm Camellien Hotel. The suite, equipped with marble bathrooms and a dining room that seats eight, has an advertised price of 900 euros, over $1,000 per night, end of quote. This isn't an isolated incidence within the structures of the United Nations. In 2014, Canada withdrew from the UN Convention to combat desertification, because the body was only spending 8% of the convention's $8.2 million budget to combat desertification in affected areas. The rest was spent on administration. I like nice hotel rooms as much as the next guy. But does this send a message of accountability when representatives of the UN bodies, which mostly receive money from taxpayer funds, appear to be wasteful? That's where the nuance is hard to achieve. An organization can be in need of reform because it both performs important tasks and gets it dead wrong on many issues, not least because it seeks out increased funding. My general impression of the World Health Organization it is that um, it's, it's done a lot of good. This is again Charles Gardner. It has you know, helped to eradicate smallpox. It has, if you look at the statistics on child mortality, uh, the numbers have dropped, which is the correct direction for them to be going dramatically since the 1980s, when six million children under the age of five were dying every year. It's about two million now. So it's so that these are there are stunning achievements, and there are very good and very dedicated people uh, working in the World Health Organization. At the same time, not all of them. Um, I think can be classified that way. So the World Health Organization has a tendency to to bring in um, people from um, its member countries. They tend often to be people who have been, uh, as the Indians call it, superannuated. They've reached the age of 60 and they've been forced to retire. And now they're taking a sinecure with a big salary and, and get a nice house in Geneva. Um, they're not always the sharpest tools in the shed. So it's, I saw the staff within the World Health Organization is kind of 50-50, really good, really dedicated people and a lot of dead wood. Act two, negative impacts. If you were a listener of the season one of Fun Police, this voice will sound familiar to you. Tobacco use is the world's leading cause of preventable death. And when so many lives are at stake, there's no excuse for inaction. I've long been committed to protecting people from the harmful effects of tobacco. And World No Tobacco Day is a chance to recommit ourselves to that work. My foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, works closely with the World Health Organization and its partners around the world. Together, we're helping to spread policies that are proven to reduce and prevent tobacco use. And with our support, more governments are making tobacco control a priority. Michael Bloomberg, net worth $96.3 billion. He founded Bloomberg Philanthropies, a charity giving billions of dollars away for things that Michael Bloomberg sees as important issues. Fighting the use of tobacco, killing junk food and sugar. If the fund police are the foot soldiers, Michael Bloomberg is their tsar. We've talked previously about tobacco harm reduction. If you want to find out more, you can listen to episodes two and three of the previous season. The WHO feels very, very strongly about tobacco use, and they are right to do so. But they also feel just as strongly about the use of e-cigarettes and heated tobacco products. 
incidentally, also disliked by one Michael Bloomberg. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is fighting back with a $160 million campaign aimed to end what he's calling an e-cig epidemic. You don't yes. let the public do something when the science says it's probably bad for you and you're in the middle of conducting research. Wait until you do the research. The three-year campaign will be led by the former mayor's organization, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. Together, they want to ban all flavored e-cigs. So we follow the money, easily in this case, and find a WHO that heavily campaigns against vaping. But are its premises correct? We ask Tiki Pangestu. The World Health Organization, uh, Western Pacific, the Twitter, the Twitter account, and they tweet, both conventional tobacco products and e-cigarettes pose risks to health. E-cigarette use can negatively impact the health of your brain, lungs, and heart, and it's linked to an increased risk of heart disease and lung disorders. Right, the way this is worded sounds like, well, it's the World Health Organization, so it must be rooted in evidence. I mean, it's the World Health Organization. There must be scientists who came to all of these conclusions and transmit that, you know, that conclusion to the world via Twitter. Uh, and so you say that that's, that's, not, that's not how that happened. That's not the entirety of the evidence. And to me, it's a classical case of cherry picking the evidence, okay, and putting it out of context. I have seen lots and lots of evidence. And it's no, I don't have any doubt in my mind that e-cigarettes, I mean, let's talk about e-cigarettes and vaping, but there are other products, are significantly less harmful than combustible cigarettes. To me, the evidence is beyond doubt. You know, there's so much evidence out there. I mean, the UK government won't be promoting electronic cigarettes, you know, if, 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 if the evidence wasn't there. Okay, so it is cherry picking. And if you look at some of the evidence that the WHO cites, they don't cite any of that. They have a group of experts which are very, very biased. They just cherry pick the evidence. Um, Bill, I'm not sure you how much of the literature of this you've been following. Um, there was an e-cigarette summit that I attended in London last uh, November, where the latest evidence, global evidence, was uh, summarized. And there's an, an organization in the UK called the Cochrane Collaboration. I'm not sure whether you know, they do this uh, exercise called systematic reviews. And the latest systematic review from Cochrane, you know, based on, on 40 or 50 studies around the world, supports the potential of electronic cigarettes. Okay, and um, uh, to me, it's very clear. I mean, that's a systematic review. It's not just one or two studies. And, and the UK has a very, uh, let's say, you can ask the question, why is the UK so progressive? And the answer to that is that they have a very highly respected group of independent public health experts that have been listened to by the government. Okay, and, and it's all based on, on, on this evidence. But unfortunately, what you said just now is very true. WHO makes this what I call evidence-free or evidence-cherry-picked statements about the dangers of electronic cigarettes. And unfortunately, in the developing countries, I, I come from Indonesia, okay, and um, even countries like, like Singapore, okay, those countries that don't or have problems deciding 
whether or not to allow electronic cigarettes, they will just take the easy way out. They say, oh, this is what WHO says, so we just follow WHO guidance. And that resulted, for example, in five out of 10 countries in the ASEAN region, Southeast Asia, actually completely banning electronic cigarettes, including Singapore, including Thailand. The soft power of the WHO in action. Thailand has amongst the strictest vaping bans in the world, and the repercussions are real. Interviewed by France 2 News, Cecilia Cornu, a French tourist in Phuket, Thailand, says that she was arrested for vaping and jailed for four days in a cell with 60 other women. Her release and eventual deportation from the country came after significant legal expenses by friends and family, amounting to 8,500 euros, over 9,000 US dollars. Whoever has visited Thailand will know that the ban on vape products isn't exactly rigorously enforced. I've seen them myself on the streets of Bangkok. Alf bars and other disposable vapes readily available alongside cheap plastic sunglasses and, well, let's say, other types of gadgets. When you have a government that practices selective enforcement, then it isn't clear to visitors or residents what the rules are. If a police officer wants to arrest you, either to solicit a bribe or simply because he doesn't like the way you talk to him, he can just arrest you for having a vape. This is where the prohibition of a perceived trivial gadget can have large criminal justice implications. Countries implement these rules because they believe the World Health Organization. But not only. And here we have another comeback from season one, the FCTC. Jalosowski will talk more about the opaqueness of that semi-WHO body in the next episode. Here's Charles Gardner. Um, a little background. So we're, we're dealing with uh, the world's first global health treaty, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. It's a little over 20 years old now. Within that treaty, which is uh, signed by most of the member countries, among other things, the phrase tobacco control is defined, and the de definition, as many people point out, includes harm reduction. It's important to understand that there is a, a secretariat to the FCTC, and it is housed within the headquarters of the World Health Organization, but it's not technically part of the World Health Organization. So they, they kind of have it both ways. They, they work hand in hand and tend to see eye to eye. The FCTC uh, is, uh, and, and part of the tobacco control efforts of the World Health Organization, are really now heavily funded by one man, one American billionaire named Michael Bloomberg. And he is a harm reduction denier. And so the, the policies that are uh, implemented, the advice that's given to member countries, by the WHO and by the FCT Secretariat, two different things, um, are consistent with uh, what I would call harm reduction denial. Uh, you could argue this would be the equivalent to, for example, a US billionaire anti-vaxxer uh, in, in funding most of the vaccine recommendations and vaccine work of the World Health Organization. Everyone would understand that that's a, that would be a crazy thing to happen, but that's exactly what's happening in tobacco control today. 
And so you could say that they all have a conflict of interest because they're all taking money from Mike Bloomberg. The FCTC doesn't only recommend a course of action for developing nations. It also incentivizes them with money. In 2018, the Republic of Georgia implemented plain packaging of cigarettes. You might remember plain packaging from episode four of our first season. The act of making all cigarette packs look the same, for which there is no evidence that it curbs smoking. Georgia implemented the rules, not because it was under the impression that it was good health policy, but because it was, let's say, incentivized through the FCTC, which acted as a slush fund with money from the UK and Australia. In short, taxpayers in developed countries pay for countries in developing nations to implement policies that do not reduce smoking so that they can then boast that they are not the only countries that implement the measure. Confused? Yeah, so am I. Still today, the most efficient way for people to quit smoking is through vaping. Tiki Pangestu says that many people, former employees of the WHO, call on it to drop its opposition to e-cigarettes. There are many of us, okay, and I can cite a few names, that basically say, hey, wake up, you know, why aren't you open to even discussing the evidence? And we just get shut down. We've tried so many uh, forums. We've tried sending letters to the WHO. Nothing, you know. So it, my, when I started to get involved in this cause, if you like, about three or four years ago, the more I hear and the more I see example. I mean, former staff members of WHO, including a former ADG, okay, you really believe, hey, WHO, you got to wake up, got to be more open, at least be open to looking at the other kinds of evidence. My conclusion after seeing so many of us in that same uh, camp. Basically, we can't all be wrong, okay? And then more importantly, we cite examples of countries. The UK is the best example, okay? New Zealand, New Zealand is another fantastic example. Japan, they have banned e-cigarettes, but they have allowed heated tobacco products. And their cigarette consumption has just gone down historically, very dramatically. So there is many examples in many countries where countries have been open and have seen success, okay? And, you know, the UK is probably the best example of this, but it's that Cochrane review that I mentioned wasn't even cited in, in any of the WHO communications about this. So I'm trying to anticipate what, what your next question will be, is how do we change it? And this is a, a question that I get asked all the time. None of us in the scientific community even those who are Nobel Prize winners, okay? None of us have the power to change WHO's mind in terms of saying, hey, let's be more open about this. Let's look at evidence and get together, you know, the harm reduction community with the tobacco control, the smoking control community. It's not going to happen. Coming, even if the US Institute of Medicine or National Academy of Science or the UK, um, NICE, the National Institute for Clinical, all these top scientific bodies, even if they badger WHO, hey, be more open to the evidence, not going to work. The only way WHO is going to change their mind is a demand from the member states. It goes back to my initial point that WHO, the Director General, will jump only if a Minister of Health says, Hey, we want tobacco harm reduction to be discussed. And for example, 
if the UK gets together with New Zealand, with Japan, with a few European countries, and as a collective say, hey, we have 24 countries here which would like you to include this in the agenda. That's the only way it's going to happen. Act 3. Who cares? There's the saying, trust is both hard to earn and easily lost. Institutions, whether they are international or national governments, benefit from trust because of their name, surely, but also because of the previous work they have done. A department of any type needs to protect its integrity. The Concorde was an impressive supersonic plane, a majestic piece of engineering. But when you hear Concorde today, you think of its crash in the year 2000, which happened for a multitude of reasons, none of which meant that the Concorde was a bad plane. It was a reputation that had been built over years, and it was destroyed in a matter of minutes. On the topic of health, let's take the example of the Tuskegee syphilis study, an example of the erosion of trust and how pervasive it can be. Here's Charles Gardner. 400 black men were, poor black men were enrolled in 1932 by the, what was then, well, what has now become the U.S. Department of Health in the Tuskegee syphilis study. Um, they were not informed that they had syphilis, but the goal of the study was to follow the progression of the disease. By 1948, penicillin was widely available they were not informed that penicillin could cure their what was called their bad blood and they were not given penicillin and this study continued until 1972 and to this day many black americans are extremely distrustful and reluctant to participate in clinical trials even even to develop interventions that are you know specifically address issues that are pre uh, prevalent in the in the black community so it's that's the real harm in the end not just to what horrible how, how horribly 400 men were treated on may 16 1997 65 years after the tuskegee syphilis study then u.s president bill clinton issued a national apology what was done cannot be undone but we can end the silence we can stop turning our heads away. We can look at you in the eye and finally say on behalf of the American people, what the United States government did was shameful and I am sorry. Thundering applause for President Clinton here. And yet, as we just heard before, trust didn't magically reappear it may never return. The World Health Organization has also made mistakes. It overspends and underdelivers. It is prone to approximation and the influence of its biggest donors, and it gets things wrong. Do you do you do you see that? In, do you want to talk about this in connection with the tobacco harm reduction issue, or do you think that's more of a general one that we should address first? I mean, it, it necessarily. I, just, I mean, I'll still use clips no matter what. But do, like, how do you? Where do you see it happen? I I think. Well, what I see happening. Um, unfortunately, is the inevitability that the World Health Organization is going to be outed. 
at, okay. at some point in the not too distant future on the on the issue of tobacco harm reduction you know they're going to have egg on their faces they're they were just wrong for a, a very very long time advising low-income countries to prohibit uh, giving awards to ministers of health uh, for prohibiting the safer alternative to deadly cigarettes and it's, it's going to be embarrassing it's just and not that many people pay much attention to tobacco control they don't but it will be yet another embarrassment for the world health organization they got something wrong and and it and we continue to erode public trust in health advice and health authorities and, and that itself is a harm that's a tremendous harm just to be clear i'm a big fan of nuance The WHO isn't an international conspiracy to take over the world. It isn't a useless bureaucracy. It isn't a Chinese propaganda arm. It isn't all those things. And it also isn't free from criticism. Two things can be true at once. The WHO can coordinate necessary research and also get things very wrong. Here's Charles Gardner again. People are fallible. And science um, doesn't always get things right. We can go back to Lysenkoism in the Soviet Union uh, uh, or racial hygiene. Scientists don't always get things right. What makes a good World Health Organization? I can't give you all the answers. What I can guess, however, are the expectations we all have for the WHO. We want health advice that is based on scientific evidence. We want transparency and accountability. We want people who work for the WHO to treat each cent given to them from taxpayers to be used in the most efficient manner and with the conscience that it needs to be fit for purpose. Is that too much to ask? Fun Police is a Consumer Choice Center original podcast. Today's episode was written and researched by me, Bill Words, contributing research by Elizabeth Hicks and Emil Panjau, editing by Yalos Hauske and myself. Thank you for those who support our work with the donation, consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate. The next episode will be out next week on Wednesday and will be hosted by Jan Lasowski. Until then, stay clear of the fun police. Mm-hmm.